Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, an inequality special. Nature has a special focus on inequality, the studies describing it, and how science can help tackle it this week, and we're following suit here on the podcast. In this show, we'll be finding out how inequality is growing, how scientists can help, and the role randomised controlled trials can play. One of the key people behind this special is Kerry Smith, features editor here at Nature, and likely a familiar voice for long-time listeners. She's co-hosting the Nature podcast with me this week. Kerry, hi. Hi, great to be back. So Kerry, it's wonderful to have you here. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about this special issue is why now? Why is nature pulling out all the stops to talk about inequality this week? Well, as you probably know, it's a perennial issue. It's been around for centuries. So there's kind of never a bad time. And the research that goes into quantifying and trying to reduce it is something that we always have an eye on. But really, the answer to why now is because the pandemic has thrown new light on this and has also, you know, not only exposed it, but worsened it in some ways. COVID has battered incomes the world over, but there's inequality in how people can recover from that. And it's affected a lot of people's health, but some groups are affected worse than others. Now, inequality is quite a broad thing. So I guess a good place to start is by asking, what is nature's sort of focus here? Well, so first of all, I guess I should just give a quick definition. So inequality at its core is any you know, unfair situation in which some people have more or less of a thing in terms of money, in terms of health or education or opportunity. And the way that nature thought we could kind of contribute to this is as a science publication, we're obviously focused on how the research community considers and studies inequality. There isn't really a field of inequality studies. People study it where they find it. So that could be in economics, in public health, medicine and even in climate honestly there are just so many different vantage points one of the focuses for the special is on how scientists 
study inequality in all these different fields that touch upon it and how if we learnt to measure certain types of inequality better, we might know a little more, you know, the nature of the beast and be able to address it more effectively. Another thing we've looked at is what science tells us about how to reduce inequality. So these are, you know, trials that are going on, decades of trials, in fact, trying to figure out what it is that can lift people out of poverty. And I mean, crucially now, the questions are, can you scale those efforts up? And then I suppose the other thing is just there's a lot of effort. There always has been from the World Bank and other large organisations painting a picture of what inequality is like over the years and decades. And we have a graphic spread that focuses on what COVID has done to inequalities. So how it's plunged what looks like tens of millions more people into poverty, for instance, than who would have been there without the pandemic, and how race, ethnicity or deprivation can affect who gets the virus and who dies from it. And so you've given us a little bit of a flavour there, but what else do we now understand about COVID, the pandemic and inequality? It seems clear now that the pandemic has exposed certain inequalities and worsened others. So COVID affected incomes across the board, but the highest earners in the world, the top 20%, have managed to basically recoup losses they made, whereas people in the bottom 20% have just not at all recovered financially. They're not earning what they ought to be if the pandemic sort of hadn't happened. And there are some more graphics on income and other inequalities in the spread. Another looks at health disparities. So in the US, data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention showed that among indigenous groups and other ethnic minorities in the states, uh, death rates from COVID were much higher per 100,000 people than they were for the white population. And in the UK, an analysis of deprivation, so this is a kind of measure of living conditions, education levels, that sort of thing, that suggested that death rates from COVID were twice as high for people in the most deprived circumstances than they were for people who live in the most affluent areas. And so how are researchers dealing with this sort of increasing inequality that has happened because of the pandemic? How are they responding? Well, I think there was probably an upwards trend in how interested researchers were in inequality even before the pandemic, because there have been some suggestions that it's worsening. So there was a report put out by the UN in 2020, showing that inequality had increased in most developed countries, some middle income countries. Although I should say that the measure of between country inequality, so inequality among countries has actually been falling for some time prior to the pandemic, which saw a little uptick. But overall, you know, the picture is gradually getting worse. The share of income going to the richest 1% has increased in a bunch of countries in the last few decades. And of course, that doesn't capture the effects of the pandemic. Newer forces, I suppose, like climate change and technology have just made researchers, I think, more interested in looking at this. So they're heading into the field in increasing numbers. That's one point that our careers feature makes in the special issue. And in new fields, too. So not just thinking about the obvious thing, maybe poverty, but how climate change might affect inequality and the lack or otherwise of natural resources, for example. So there are more people coming into this field. Is there any concern that with an influx of people, it could, you know, have some sort of unintended consequences to the research? Well, I think whenever a topic becomes salient, we've seen before, you know, waves of research that aren't done as well as they could be. So perhaps this is by people who are captured by the topic and very well-meaning, but not necessarily as well-equipped as people who've been in the field for a while. This happened with clinical trials for COVID, some of which were just too small, too underpowered to be able to really demonstrate benefit, a bit of a waste of time. 
adding inequality to your research questions, you know, might seem really trendy. It's great that it's getting all of this extra attention. But some of the researchers, again, quoted in our careers feature, say that there are dangers of mischaracterizing, for example, what's really causing inequalities, and that could cloud the picture. So it's great that people are jumping in, but they need to be careful what they're doing. And I guess you talked a little bit about people trying to measure stuff and trying to understand the issue. Is there an issue with just not enough data? Do we just not understand this problem well enough? I think as science-friendly people here at Nature and scientists in our audience, we're probably always going to say there's not enough data. There's never enough data. We want more data. If you don't have the data, it could be as if the inequality doesn't exist. You know, if you can collect data on age and ethnicity and gender, well, that's all very well. You can measure those things. But if you don't collect, for example, disability information, then what can you really say about disability? So some organisations and some scholars are calling for more comprehensive data collection. And I'm sure that's a theme that at Nature we could endorse. And another part of the coverage in this week's special issue is about poverty. And that's something that reporter Jeff Tollison has been writing about. Yeah, so he has looked at decades of work and the most recent sort of trends within that on using randomized control trials. So trials where you split people into groups, you give an intervention to one group, you don't give it to the other and you see if there's a difference at the other end. And he's focused on a group of trials that have to do with giving people money, basically, to see if they spend that in a way that helps lift them out of poverty. And that's something that we've delved into in a little bit more depth this week, as reporter Benjamin Thompson actually spoke to Jeff about his feature. And Jeff started by outlining the scale of this issue. Well, globally, there are hundreds of millions of people living in extreme poverty, and the governments of the world have committed to eliminate extreme poverty by 2030. So that sets up your fundamental challenge. And so governments and aid organisations are looking to develop and deliver measures to reduce poverty. And much of the work that you've been writing about involves randomised controlled trials. Now, often when we hear that phrase, we think of testing drugs or testing vaccines and what have you. But when it comes to anti-poverty programmes, many of these RCTs began in the 1990s. That's correct. You know, there's been research into poverty policies going back, you know, long before that. And there are different ways that you can look at this education, health, opportunity. But beginning around the mid 1990s, there was a subtle shift toward the use of randomized control trials to try and test policies and interventions. And now the entire field of research has been mainstreamed straight up to the World Bank itself. And where are these trials being done now then? And what are they sort of looking at in particular? These trials are being done everywhere, targeting kind of almost everything, the full suite of issues. But in our recent story, we focused on a particular subset of these programs that's really focused on giving people money and other resources to try and lift them out of poverty. So the basic idea here is that in the words of one of the economists I talked to, if you give people money, it turns out it makes them less poor. That might sound like an obvious statement, but it took us decades to get to that realization. So that's what a lot of the biggest trials today are focused on. I mean, you say it's an obvious statement, but it was a very controversial statement for a long time. And there was a lot of pushback even into running trials like this. Yeah, there were always fears that if you gave poor people money, they would use it on cigarettes or alcohol. You see the same concerns raised in industrialized countries. If you let people stay on the social safety net too long, you know, does it make them lazy? Does giving people money encourage them to work less or enable them to work less? The answer from all of the research that's been done is basically no. 
people want to work, people want to earn more, people want to have a higher standard of living. And oftentimes it's the lack of money that is preventing them from doing those things. And a lot of governments have taken these lessons to heart. Today, cash transfer programs, whether they have conditions attached to them or completely unconditional, these types of programs have been rolled out across the global south. They are extremely common. And in many ways, they've become a core tool in the arsenal that governments use to try and uh, alleviate poverty. And in your feature, you write about how researchers are trying to improve upon these approaches of just providing funds and the evolution of these trials to include more things. So the field has moved on. I mean, this started even perhaps a decade ago. I mean, if you think about an unconditional cash grant program as like a baseline, we know that that does some good. The real question is, you know, can we design programs that do better than that? If not, then there's no sense in designing programs. You just give some people some money and and call it good. So what scientists have been doing is looking at programs that give people, in addition to some cash aid, things like an asset could be a cow or some chickens and some business training and perhaps some personal coaching focused on life skills designed to promote self-empowerment, self-confidence. And even in the case of one of the most recent trials that we're talking about in Niger, community programming, where villages in Niger were shown a video about a couple that kind of struggles to make do and to create a new business and is successful with the help of friends and family and community. And then there's a discussion with the recipients of this program and the broader community. You know, so this is kind of a suite of interventions that's designed to not just help people at the subsistence level, but help them build businesses or build ways to boost their income and improve their lives over the long haul. That's the goal. And what sort of results have been seen from these trials then, Jeff? In general, they tend to show that people are better off financially, better off psychologically, tend to be happier, less stressed. And that was the case in the latest program in Niger. And the thing is that they set it up in such a way as to test the effects of the different components of these interventions. So some people, in addition to the business training, received a cash grant. Other people, in addition to the business training, received some kind of psychosocial intervention. And another group received all of the above. And what they found is, you know, the group that receives everything performs the best, but the group that received, you know, the psychosocial interventions alone also did pretty well. And if you look at it from a purely cost-benefit perspective, that one is probably the most efficient intervention. And one of the folks you speak to in your feature does make the point that it's not all about the money. And this isn't new as well. This has been seen before in, in other studies. Yeah, that's correct. One of the examples that we give in this story is this classic experiment from Jamaica in the late 1980s. Again, this is one of these experiments that predates the modern wave. And it tells you things about how these types of interventions can have lasting effects. In this case, it was an early childhood intervention. It focused on nutrition for malnourished children under the age of two. And it also focused on interventions for mothers, basically parental training. And two decades on, the children that received the intervention were earning 25% more. And three decades on, that disparity increased to 37%. So that's an experiment that has had huge impacts on the research community across the world. And governments have tried replicating it and scaling it up ever since. And scaling can be an issue, right? Moving from a small pilot in one location to a large intervention somewhere else can be tough. Countries are different, cultures are different, 
And working out exactly what it was that made the difference can be difficult too. Absolutely. So even in this program, there have been a couple of well-documented attempts to scale this up to 700 people in Colombia and 70,000 in Peru, and they saw less effect. When I talked to the lead on that original experiment, she was perfectly honest and said, scaling up is a nightmare. You know, the experiment in Niger that we talk about is part of a larger set of trials that goes across the, the Sahel, four countries. And this already is one kind of question. How do we scale up some of these early results? You know, the trick is to figure out what is the special sauce? And can you replicate that special sauce in a different culture with different people In some of these cases, you're talking about dedicated scientists and postdocs at the pilot scale. When you move up to a government program that operates across the country, you're talking about perhaps functionaries within a health system who may already be overworked in all sorts of ways. So how do you translate it from science, basically, to public policy? And of course, the current issue of nature is very much looking at issues surrounding inequality and inequity. And as these anti-poverty trials are ramped up from pilot studies to larger efforts around the world. Researchers are really maybe holding up a mirror to themselves and uh, making sure that the right people are reached as well. What have researchers said to you about that? Well, there are concerns that whether we're either targeting the right populations in all cases or collecting the data that we need to say meaningful things about how these trials actually improve poverty rates or address inequality. For example, we've got anti-poverty trials that are being run all over the world, right? But most of them, although they're in poor countries, they don't tend to be in the poorest countries, right? Because it's hard to set up trials in places where there's conflict, for instance, or where there's governmental instability. So that's kind of one question that's out there. Another is even once you do your trial, Are you collecting enough data to be able to answer questions about whether that trial is affecting people equitably within the group that you're targeting? So I have one example in the story of a trial of a cash grant program that was tied to educational attendance, school attendance among children, where within that group, it was the less poor students who benefited the most and the poorest students benefited less although they did benefit. So even within a certain group, you can have a situation where you get almost an expansion of inequality. And then, of course, there are always concerns about data collection. I talked to one economist who kind of lamented and said he himself is guilty, but lamented that economists who are working on this issue often don't report the data that you would need to determine you know, the poverty level of, of the people involved in some of these interventions. You know, so you might have an agricultural technology intervention where you try it out and you see, oh, yes, this program works. The people adopted the technology. But did it reduce poverty? We don't know because the data wasn't collected. So these concerns are out there and people are thinking about them more and more. Jeff, I don't think it's a stretch to say then that, that these issues aren't going to be solved overnight, despite these trials being put in place and these pilot schemes. What are researchers saying to you about the near and medium term efforts to alleviate poverty and inequality issues around the world? So, I mean, there's another thing to keep in mind. A lot of these programs are targeted at some basic issues. Economic poverty is just one component. You know, we've talked a little bit about education and health. But really, if you want to promote global development, sustainable development at an international level in any kind of equitable manner, you have to address a whole range of issues. And so 
Ariana Legovini, who heads the impact evaluation work at the World Bank, she talked to me about this and said her goal is to basically take these same tools that were developed for poverty alleviation and social protection and start trying to apply them to some of the other big ticket items that are out there. Infrastructure, climate interventions, governance. These are all areas where the international community makes very large investments, larger than in the poverty arena, in fact. And in theory, you want all of those interventions to be aimed in the right direction and to be working together. So, you know, there's a big agenda out there to understand the efficacy of all of the investments that we're making in the global development arena. That was Nature's Jeff Tillerson there. We'll put a link to his feature in the show notes. And so, Kerry, Jeff spoke there about RCTs, randomized controlled trials, to do with poverty. But this is something that can be used a bit more broadly. Yeah. And so, of course, RCTs are a very well used tool. Uh, They probably first became a tool in, in medicine as opposed to in social science. And here there are a couple of ways researchers need to be thinking about inequality. Firstly, you know, are you excluding particular people from your drug trial, for instance, and therefore will you find it hard to apply that treatment to everybody? Um, So we saw this happen with drugs and vaccines for COVID, which weren't routinely tested in pregnant women, and subsequently guidance on whether they were safe for that group was very muddy for a while. And then, of course, the second thing I suppose to worry about once the trial is complete is, is your drug or vaccine going to be distributed equitably? We know there's there's been a lot of problems distributing these sorts of treatments and preventative measures worldwide for COVID. And of course, that does nothing to improve the situation. And so you mentioned there about some people maybe not being included in some randomised controlled trials. Is there anything being done to sort of address this? Yeah, it's of course, it's really important to ensure that disadvantaged, underserved populations are not excluded from your trial so that your intervention could benefit everybody and and that your drug or your treatment or whatever it is, isn't just tested on a group of, you know, wealthy-ish white males for the sake of caricature. One program trying to do this in the arena of clinical trials is called Trial Forge. It's run out of the University of Aberdeen and a team that are centred there. And it's developing a new framework for clinical trials that basically aims to boost participation in groups that might be underrepresented and just help researchers to think about ways they might be more equitable. And then I suppose the second thing that you could do to address this is more data. I think we, <laughs> I think we mentioned this. Um, there's an increasing awareness that researchers need better data on their populations to make sure that they can analyze afterwards any effects that are specific to particular subgroups. If the data is not there, you can't do that. You don't need to do that yourself as a researcher, but at least if it's there, then other researchers can come along, crunch the data, conduct what's often called a systematic review and draw lessons from the work about who was impacted, who benefited most, who failed to benefit from any particular trial. And so Kerry, whilst we're shining a light on inequality this week, there is still other science going on in the world. And we have a story about that coming up now. Reporter Ali Jennings has been finding out how time of day could affect how breast cancer spreads. Cancer tumours are groups of cells that multiply uncontrollably in the body. In certain cancers, a kind of cell called a circulating tumour cell can dislodge from a tumour and then travel around the body through the blood, possibly forming a new tumour in another place. This is called metastasis. Metastasis is generally associated with worse clinical outcomes for cancer patients. But although it is such an important aspect of cancer, it is still poorly understood 
why the circulating tumour cells that can lead to metastasis enter the bloodstream in the first place. It was thought to happen continuously as a tumour grows, uh, these tumour cells are able to leave the tumour more or less at any point in time and enter the circulation. This is Nicola Aceto, a researcher from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. Nicola and his team wanted to better understand why circulating tumour cells left tumour sites in the first place. So they started by studying mice with breast cancer tumours. But when they tested the numbers of circulating tumour cells in their blood, they stumbled on something surprising. So the lead author of the manuscript, she drew blood from these models just naturally at different times of the day. And then she couldn't put the numbers together. She realized that the very same model had very different numbers of circulating tumor cells, depending on whether you would take blood at different times of the day. What Nicola and his team had observed was that the tumor cells released depended on the mouse's circadian rhythm. We knew nothing about the circadian rhythm. <laughs> we, are, we are cancer people. We never even thought about it until we saw these strange, strange numbers. The circadian rhythm is an internal clock that changes aspects of a creature's physiology depending on where it is in its wake-rest cycle. Nicola and his team found that mice had up to 88 times the number of circulating tumour cells during their rest phase compared to their awake phase. The first thought was really like, um, my God, nobody ever noticed that. (laughs) Just by switching lights in the the room on and off at different times, we could change the number of circulating tumor cells in animal models. So we pretty much the first step that we did was to look at patient samples. And then at that point, the excitement became very, very real because it was clearly the case also in patients. Nicola's team took blood from breast cancer patients at 4 in the morning, during rest phase, and 10 in the morning, when they were awake. Just over 78% of all the circulating tumour cells they found came from rest phase. But that wasn't all. When Nicola and his team returned to the mouse model to better characterise what they were seeing, they made another crucial observation about the circulating tumour cells produced during rest phase. Not only they are much more in number, but they are also a lot more proliferating and a lot more capable to form metastases compared to cells that are taken during the active phase. And the rest phase release of these aggressive tumour cells was being regulated by specific hormones. Glucocorticoids, testosterone and insulin are all released differentially throughout the wake-rest cycle. When Nicola's team interfered with these hormonal pathways, it decreased the amount of circulating tumour cells released into the bloodstream. Hearing that got me excited. Could blocking these hormones at night be a way to slow metastasis for cancer patients? Not that simple because, you know, the blockers that we found are blocking very well in a highly controlled experimental setting. To think about giving these blockers continuously to patients because it's not just blocking one one time it's 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 blocking as long as they have a tumor and and that's a completely different story and that of course is not that simple but there could be other avenues of treatment to explore you know one option could be to really time treatments of patients in a way that maximum concentration of drugs is achieved during the night as opposed to being achieved during the day because that's when things happen really this paper has opened a new chapter in blood-based biomarker studies. This is Sunita Nagrath, a researcher in chemical engineering and biomedical engineering from the University of Michigan, 
who was not involved in this work. I studied circulating tumor cells for now more than 15 years. And uh, we look at the biology of the cells. Uh, we have elegant technologies uh, to capture these cells. But we never thought the CTCs could be released in a very differential manner by looking when you are looking for them. Sunita thinks that this work will have profound effects on the way people study blood-borne markers for cancer. Now researchers will need to take circadian cycles into account, and she also thinks it will change how clinicians monitor the health of cancer patients. If you want to monitor the patients with a robust biomarker, we need to be very aware of when to draw the blood, because it can drastically affect the way we are measuring the cell concentration in the blood and how we are monitoring. But Sunita is also aware that more work will need to be done to flesh out this initial discovery. The key is always to be able to see the similar results in human patients. I would like to see a study where we really monitor them continuously over a period of 24 hours and really see that surges in a cyclical fashion following the circadian cycle. And will they see the same result in other kinds of cancers? This is in a hormonal dependent uh, cancer, which is a breast cancer, breast tumor. It would be interesting to see whether these uh, observations will be still hold true if we study in, you know, maybe a lung cancer or non-hormonal cancers. I asked Nicola what his next experiments would be, and it turns out he and Sunita are thinking along the same lines. Yeah, the next step is, first of all, to understand whether this happens only in breast cancer, which is where we've seen it, or maybe in other cancer types. Uh, Of course, we dream that this might be a pan-cancer phenomenon, that metastasis really occurs during sleep in, in, in many cancer types. With this research, Nicola and his team have observed an entirely new dimension through which to study the behavior of circulating cancer tumor cells. And it may be that this leads to some profound changes to the way we understand and treat cancer. That was Ali Jennings, who spoke to Nicola Aceto from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland and to Nathan Negraff from the University of Michigan in the US. As always, you can find the full paper in the show notes. So Kerry, bringing us back round to the main topic of the show this week, inequality, there's also a comment article in Nature this week about inequality of opportunity. What can you tell me about this? So this is a comment piece by an author, an economist called Francisco Ferreira, and he's arguing for better measurement of this particularly harmful type, he says, of inequality, inequality of opportunity. So he defines that as inequalities based on just things you can't really change, things you can't do anything about, your race, where you grew up, your parents' education. And these are often things that reproduce down the generations. And what he says in his comment is, it's really hard to get data on this. So we just don't know what proportion of any given inequality is due to this this kind of pernicious effect of inequality of opportunity. So it's really just hard to quantify this and we should be better at it. So how might we close that gap in terms of getting more data about this particular part of inequality? So his idea is, you know, in order to get the data, he acknowledges this is really difficult stuff. You're asking for people's parents' education levels and these sorts of things to try and find out if that has an effect on those people as they become adults. So you need long-term surveys and in lots of detail on family history, basically, and the person's own circumstances. And there are some data sets that are like this. 
mostly they've been put together in wealthy nations. So the US has one, Germany has a socioeconomic panel, both running for decades that ask about people's jobs, parenting, and then this is useful information to have when you're looking at how those features might affect the next generation. And then, of course, you have to kind of figure out how to split people into groups that make sense in terms of how they might differ in certain characteristics. You know, their parents went to university or they didn't, or they're a different race or ethnicity. And his idea is once you can control for variables like these, you can start to figure out what proportion of inequality overall might be due to inequality of opportunity. And if he estimates inequality of opportunity in this way, he thinks it might account for over two thirds, 66% and upwards uh, of the overall sort of income inequality in the country. So possibly then a very large part of inequality. So there's a lot to think about here of inequality. It's not going away and recent events have made things worse. Do we have any sort of takeaways from this special issue? I guess for scientists, a takeaway we've talked about already, (laughs) uh, maybe ad nauseum, or maybe it's music to the ears of our listeners, is that we just need data. We need good data. We need up-to-date data on a whole host of inequalities, and we need to make sure that we're collecting the right data to answer the right questions, and that that's not going to happen for inequality without the help of scientists across the board. So interdisciplinarity, horrible word, but useful concept, is going to be really key here, as it is in in many other uh, or an increasing amount of scientific disciplines. So that if you're studying inequalities worsened by climate change, for instance, you might work with a climate scientist, with an economist, with an anthropologist, you know, you might join up some skills from very different areas of academia to help you sort of really get a handle on the problem. Well, fascinating and sobering stuff there, Kerry. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And listeners, there'll be links to all the articles in this week's special issue in the show notes. And Kerry, thanks once again. Thanks for having me. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.